0: The book of 1st Corinthians, if you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament. You can check the table of contents. It's one of the Apostle Paul's letters, a book called 1st Corinthians. We are beginning today a mini-series covering the first two chapters of this letter. We're calling that mini-series, Being a Gospel-Centered Community, about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, And then after that, we will cover chapters 12 through 14. I'd like to pray, and then Sharon's going to read our passage for us this morning. Let's ask for God's help. Spirit of God, fill us, we ask you. Ephesians 5, verse 18, commands us to be continually filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3 tells us to have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. So meet us with that in mind. Fill us that the word might dwell in us richly and we might leave here with fresh hope in our souls, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're reading this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Amen. Thank you, Sharon, so much. It's a little bit different this morning. I want to do three things. I would like to answer the question, why preach 1 Corinthians 1 through 2? Why do that? And then I want to introduce the letter itself. And then I want to hit on something particular in the passage Sharon read. So first thing, why 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 2. Why are we covering this section? Well, here's some background. Last February, we invited all of our leaders and we invited different people from different demographics in this church for an evening over at Steve and Sharon's house because we wanted to get their insights. We wanted to get their input both on where we're strong as a church, where they see God at work, where they observe God's grace in our midst, And where we're weak as a church, where we have opportunities to grow as a church, and it was a helpful evening. One of the themes we heard was, you know, we're not really putting into practice, it seems, our convictions about the present day work of the Holy Spirit. He's still empowering Christians for ministry and service. He's still giving spiritual gifts to that end. It's not clear how we as a church are walking that out. I felt like, I think we felt like, that was a helpful corrective from the Spirit of God through the people of God. A helpful helpful corrective, helpful reminder. And so as elders, we began to sketch out a plan to respond because we agreed with that feedback for sure we wanted to teach as part of that plan chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians very strategic passage that speaks to those issues and yet and yet we didn't want to just cherry pick those three chapters and miss out on some of the broader context of this inspired letter we didn't want to simply accent the Spirit's work in chapters 12 through 14 and miss the vital gospel context in chapters 1, chapter 2, and beyond. I felt like we needed at least chapters 1 and 2, at least chapters 1 and 2, so that we as a church keep chapters 12 through 14 in their proper perspective. It's been said and said there are three ways you can lose the gospel or lose the centrality of the good news. Three ways we could lose the centrality of this good news. We could could add to the gospel with legalism. We could take away from the gospel somehow. Or we can just have, thirdly, a, a misapplied emphasis. A lack of proportionality. And that's why we want to cover chapters 1 through 2, to keep other good, important things in their proper perspective, to keep other important truths orbiting around the sun, as it were, the main thing, the good news itself. So we'll spend six weeks on chapters 1 through 2, and then six weeks on chapters 12 through 14, which leads me to introduce this letter itself, introducing 1 Corinthians. Let me give you some background to this letter that I think will help appreciate what we're about to encounter in God's Word. Here's some background. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is, well, he's having a tough time of it, as was his lot oftentimes. In Acts chapter 16, he is jailed in Philippi, and then miraculously, God intervenes. And then Acts 17, he escapes mob violence in Thessalonica. Goes over to Athens and preaches with a mixed reception to the Arapagos, Mars Hill, and then in Acts 18, in Acts 18, he leaves Athens and goes to the city called Corinth. And we believe that's about 51 A.D. Corinth was a prosperous port city, you might say, in southern Greece today. It was on a particular isthmus, so it controlled this port nearby. And in Corinth, the apostle again is opposed. He is again reviled by his opponents. It would seem the apostle is discouraged, maybe even fearful, for the Lord Jesus himself gives Paul a vision while he's in Corinth. He says to him, quote, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent there in Corinth, For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people, many in this city, who are my people. In other words, stay in Corinth, keep on preaching, I'll protect you, and I'm going to draw many people to myself through this ministry of the gospel, the good news. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. A whole solid year and a half preaching the good news. And King Jesus did what he said he would do. He brought many to himself through the proclamation of this good news. And a church was founded in the city of Corinth. Well, Paul moved on after that year and a half to the city called Ephesus. And somewhere in that time period, his relationship with the church in Corinth got a little bit rocky. Those Christians in Corinth began to identify with various leaders, and so there were divisions in the church, and there were all kinds of, let's just call them messes. (laughs) It was getting pretty messy there in Corinth, and so, so Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth, a letter we don't have. And we know he wrote this letter because he says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, he says, quote, I wrote to you in my letter, my previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. I think that's interesting because there's a sense in which 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians. We don't have the original letter. The Holy Spirit did not preserve that for us in God's wisdom and God's design. He writes a letter to them the corinthians respond with their own letter back to paul probably with their own questions and concerns and objections first corinthians is paul writing back in response to their letter that's what you have before us so first corinthians is a letter forged out of real church life in a cosmopolitan port city kind of like san diego Addressing the messiness of life. Just like what we need right here. Just like what you and I need in the messiness of our own lives. And where the apostle begins is applying this good news, the gospel, which brings me to our passage this morning. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And for the sake of time and, well, particular focus. I want to focus on verse 2. In verse 1, he highlights his calling as an apostle, which makes sense because they're going to question, they are questioning his apostolic calling. In verse 3, he tells them of the grace and mercy of God coming to them through Jesus Christ. We need that. I want to focus, though, on the unique statement he makes in verse 2. A very strategic statement he makes in verse 2. For here in verse 2, he is, he is presenting for you and me a gospel-centered, Jesus-centered ethic. A gospel-centered ethic from the start. He writes in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So reminder first, you are God's church. God owns you. To the church of God in Corinth. Notice, sanctified, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Right away from the outset, Corinthians, you are people who have been sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, in spiritual union with the risen Christ. And the sense here is um, of being set apart or made separate. Or really, you might say, made holy, made separate, or made holy. It's the idea when something that is common is, is set apart for special use. And there is, there is rich Old Testament background in this idea of being sanctified. You could read about the utensils that were prepared to be used in the temple in the Old Testament you think about their origins, they were just at some point a, a blob of molten metal and then a craftsman worked on them somehow and refined it and then made a fork. He made a bronze fork and not, nothing so particularly unique about a bronze fork, nothing so special about a bronze fork. <laughs> But when God says, make it for my special purposes, it's going to be used in my temple, it becomes holy. It becomes set apart. It becomes sanctified, you might say, by God and for God. And verse 2 is saying, if you're a Christian, that's happened to you. That's what God has done in your life. He took something common like you and me and set you apart, sanctified you, defined you as holy in His sight to be used in His purpose, set apart from your former way of life, and now dedicated to God and His purposes. I I don't know that anything more encouraging could be said about you this morning than that you are sanctified in union with Jesus Christ. Set apart for God, because you've been set apart by God. But this way of speaking about being sanctified, it might be a little bit confusing because we usually use this term in a different way, don't we? And that's why I wanted to park on this. We usually talk about sanctification as a process. A process of progressively, bit by bit, becoming more like Jesus. And that's a legitimate biblical use. Bit by bit, being changed by the Holy Spirit into more and more of the image of Jesus Christ. The moral image of God the Son. That's called progressive sanctification. It's a process. Progressive sanctification. But verse 2 is not talking about that. Verse 2, and and regularly in the New Testament, sanctification is being described as a moment in time, what's called definitive sanctification. Not progressive, definitive. Definitive, track with me, definitive sanctification is not a process. It's a one-time event when, wham, God sets you apart for His Purposes. Here's an example later in chapter 6. This comes up where Paul writes, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of them. And then he says, and such were some of you. And such were all of us. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. You were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified. You were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified. Did you catch that? In other words, at a moment in time, God gave you a new identity in Jesus. A new identity. If you are in Christ right now, You have a new identity before God. I thought of it like, it's not a perfect analogy, but I thought of it like the witness protection program. If you're a witness that might be in some danger, I have an uncle who's a defense attorney. and He had a case recently where witnesses began to meet untimely deaths, sadly. It was a gang trial. That happens. And so they put people into the witness protection program. And what they do, as I understand it, is they give you a brand new identity. You are, as it were, the same person. You have the same facial features, you dress the same way perhaps, you might act the same way even, but you have a brand new identity in the eyes of the rest of society. If you're a Christian, it's like that for you. You have a brand new identity before God, you are now defined as holy in His sight, sanctified. Something, friends, something definitive has been done to you that you could never do for yourself. God has broken the power of sin. He's removed the penalty of sin and declared you righteous in His sight. Isn't that good news? Let me say that again. He has broken the power of sin. You are no longer its slave. That's redemption. He's removed the wrath we have earned and bestowed His favor. That's propitiation. And He has declared you righteous with the righteousness of His Son. That's justification. Those things have been done to you at conversion and such that you have a brand new identity before God. United to Jesus, sanctified in Christ. God doing for you what you could never do for yourself. This is the gospel. In his famous book, Church Father Augustine, his famous book, Confessions, Augustine, Augustine looks back on his own conversion and he speaks of his insatiable sexual desires holding him back from Christ. And he realized he could not, looking back, could not change himself. Looking back, he says, my old loves, my old loves held me back. They tugged at the garment of my flesh and whispered, Are you going to get rid of us? Augustine writes of a vision of a woman whom he calls Lady Continence, Lady Self-Restraint. And in his despair of being unable to change himself, Lady Continence says to him, Why are you relying on yourself? Why are you relying on yourself? Cast yourself upon Christ. He will catch you and heal you. In that moment, Augustine heard a child's voice playing a game saying, Take and read. Take and read. He ran inside, opened a Bible, fell to Romans 13 which he read, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh. And in that moment, he was converted. In that moment, he was definitively sanctified. In that moment, God did for him what he could never do for himself. And now he was defined as holy before God, no longer a slave to sin because he was in Christ. Let me just pause and say, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, you need the same experience. If you're not yet a Christian, you need that identical experience. You might even be growing up in this church. You might be growing up in a Christian home. But listen, church attendance does not make you sanctified like this. Growing up in a Christian home does not set you apart as holy before God like this. Only Jesus can You need to come to Christ like Augustine did. I want you to hear what he said he heard. Why are you relying on yourself? Why are you relying on yourself? Cast yourself on Christ. He will catch you. He will heal you. Surrender to Him right now. Cry out to Him. And if you have believed, listen, if you have believed... This verse is saying you have been defined before God as holy, set apart by God and for God. And with that new identity comes a calling, a calling on your life. As the verse continues, it says next that you are called to be saints. You notice that in your Bible? Called to be saints. Now, in our own Christian tradition, we don't really call each other saints. But maybe we should in this sense. Because what he is saying is, you are called to be holy people. That's the meaning of the word. Holy people, the word translated saints, is also rooted in the Greek word for holy. So you could read verse 2 as, You are set apart, sanctified as holy, and called to be God's holy people in Corinth. Which is pretty ironic because they weren't living as God's holy people in Corinth. There were divisions, like I mentioned. There was relational strife in the church. People were coming to the Lord's Supper drunk. There was grieving sexual immorality in their midst. Members were suing each other. They were infatuated with certain spiritual gifts to be, quote-unquote, spiritual people. So, So the apostle must provide lots of correction in this letter. There's a lot of correction that happens in this letter. But notice what he does in this intentional introduction. He is setting all of that correction in the context of God's prior activity. He is saying God has acted upon you first to sanctify you, define you, you might say, as holy, and now live that out in your life. I think D.A. Carson puts this helpfully. Dr. Carson writes, the Corinthians already are sanctified. They have been set apart We have that quote. There it is. The Corinthians already are sanctified. They have been set apart for God. Therefore, they have been called to be holy. That is, live life in line with their calling. You notice that? Now called to live life in line with that calling of what God has done. Gordon Fee comments similarly. He says, Paul Paul understands Christian ethics in terms of becoming what you are. It's a good way to put it. Becoming what you are already in Christ. Is that how you think about Christian ethics? Becoming what you already are. That's a gospel-centered, Christ-centered ethic. Become what or who you are. It's kind of like this. 2019 marks 400 years since the first slave was brought from Africa. It's a sad, grieving anniversary. It wasn't until 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, changing the status of 3.5 million people from slave to free. But everywhere that the Union Army was not yet in control, those individuals still had to live in slavery. It wasn't until June 19th, 1865, two and a half years later, what's called Juneteenth, that the news of their freedom arrived in Galveston, Texas. And finally, They were able to live in light of this freedom. And there's a sense in which verse 2, sanctified in Christ, is like your emancipation proclamation. But We don't always live in light of that, do we? Sometimes we live as if we're still slaves to sin. We need a kind of Juneteenth experience where this news of our freedom, this news of our liberty, reaches our ears and affects our hearts and changes our minds. So we say, Yes, I am freed from slavery to sin. That's why this is so important. I could sum up the reason why with one word hope. This is so important because it provides hope. The apostle is reminding them of who they are in Christ, that they might have hope to become what they ought to be, holy people in Corinth. Friends, this is what our care should look like in our home groups, in our fellowship together. Someone confesses their sins, someone confesses their Troubles, their temptations, ways they've fallen short. Let us first remind them of who they are in Christ, that they might have hope. See, what we often do, what we often do, is described in a journal called Nautilus, and an article entitled Against Willpower. It says, quote, Thomas was a highly successful, mild-mannered lawyer who was worried about his drinking. He came to see me at my psychotherapy practice, and his wine intake had crept up to six or seven glasses at night. He was starting to hide it from his family and feel the effects at work. We discussed treatment strategies and made an appointment to meet again. When he returned two weeks later, he was despondent. His drinking was totally unchanged. I just couldn't cut back. I guess I don't have the willpower. And the article is going on to say, there is a failure of relying on willpower alone. You know the, the secular world is seeing this. I'm asking, are we seeing this? Have you realized? Have you realized the the impotence of willpower alone I'm not saying we don't make any effort in the process of change I'm saying this is a gospel centered ethic where willpower alone doesn't cut it because that provides no real hope. You need to first see I've been acted upon by God. He regards me as holy in His sight. I've been set apart and sanctified and now I can make progress in holiness over time. Are you tracking with me? It's almost like When we see our sin, we become sometimes condemned, and we become confused. We become lost. We lose our bearings. And sometimes begin not even to care about progressive holiness. Is that you this morning? Hopelessness is is paralyzing, isn't it? When you lack hope for change, you feel lost. And what you need is hope like a map that shows you where to go and gives you faith to get there. A a gospel map, you might say, in which you locate yourself in Christ. And you realize God defines me as holy. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Therefore, I can make progress. You see, a gospel-centered ethic begins with this new identity in Christ where the apostle begins his letter. And it says, step one, you've been sanctified. Realize that and go from there. I want to ask you, friends, where are you needing that map in your mind right now? Are you feeling, where are you feeling hopeless in the process of change? Where are, you, where are you lacking faith that real change is possible? Now, if you're here wondering, where do I need to change? Ask your spouse or a close friend, and they will help you. Where for you are you lacking hope, lacking faith that change is even possible, that real change can happen over time for you. As I was preparing this, I thought about the area of pornography, the issues of lust that ensnare many men and many women. And it's a real snare, isn't it? Maybe for you, the the love of pornography, the the sin of lust is is gripping you and it feels like a vice. You, You feel like Augustine felt You don't think you can escape its grip. And now you're not sure if you even want to because you're so hopeless. Well, you need this map to locate yourself in Christ, first of all. To see that you are defined as holy. You have been sanctified, set apart by God and for God. And now you can live progressively as His holy people. Step one, remember you've been sanctified, and so become who you are. Or maybe, maybe you're a teenager. I thought about the teens here, and like myself, what can consume your mental energy is, how do I appear in the eyes of others? How do I appear? Do I have their approval? Is my life Instagram worthy? Do I appear to be cool enough to them? And it's a treadmill, isn't it? It's an exhausting treadmill of always trying to gain and keep approval in the eyes of others. And listen, there's a better way to live. And it's first by using this map and locate yourself in Christ. And say, in union with Jesus, God regards me as holy in His sight. And listen, holy is better than cool. I promise you. So step one, realize you've already been sanctified and now become who you are progressively in growing holiness. Or or maybe you're a parent here and this relates to you. I love my children with all my heart parenting over the years has certainly exposed a lot of sinful anger and impatience. Self-righteousness. This week I was taking one of my kids to school. I dropped my water bottle on my big toe. I am a wimp. I was in pain. Other child said something I didn't appreciate. I was obviously angry. Demonstrably angry. And in the car, I didn't want to repent. I wanted this child to repent first, because they weren't kind to me. When I thought about this message, I thought, Tab, you know, that's where you get hopeless, that you might become a more patient, gentle father. Parents, can you relate? Here's a gospel centered ethic for you. Step one, step one, realize you've been sanctified. Realize God defined you as holy. You've been set apart by God and for God and now called to be more and more, more and more, bit by bit, one of his holy people expressed in your parenting. God can do that and will do that as you have hope locating yourself in Christ. Friends, the takeaway is become who you are. Become who you are in Christ. Apply this gospel-centered ethic, which the apostle begins this entire letter with. You are sanctified and now called to be God's holy people right here in San Diego. To reassure us of that, to give us fresh hope, Together we're going to take the Lord's Supper so the music team can come and those who are going to serve us can prepare to do so please.